We finish up our um, short little series through Matthew chapter 1 this morning. We've sung at least a couple of times over the last few weeks, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Wesley, that great hymn writer, wrote that hymn. But the arrangement of it that we have was put together by George Whitfield, who was a friend and contemporary of Wesley. Um, he took words that were a little less poetic, maybe, than what we're used to, um, and, and put together the hymn that we sing that most of us are familiar with. These verses that you see were originally a part of the hymn. Don't try to sing them in your mind to the tune that you know of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, because they'll work a little bit, but then they don't um, as you get further into the course, okay? Um, it's interesting. I was reading an article this week um, about this hymn, and, and this particular scholar who wrote this article said, um, talking about these stanzas that are usually not part of the, the, the Christmas carol, says, this is understandable as they are theologically and biblically dense, with illusion and perhaps not as poetic as the oft-quoted stanzas. So this particular scholar, whoever he was, um, I didn't pay much attention to that, just felt like these verses were pretty biblically dense. I would call them robust. I would call them biblically solid as a rock. And if you read through them, um, you see, and in fact, he says this gives us insight into Wesley's theology of the incarnation. And it does. It does help us understand what Wesley understood the incarnation to mean. Just read those verses with me. I'm not going to sing them. We're not going to try to put them to hark the herald angels sing because, again, they, they really don't work um, all the way. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. We do sing part of that. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power. Ruined nature, now restore. Now in mystic union join thine to ours and ours to thine. Look at this next verse. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Erase works there too, okay? It's the same idea. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, Regain thee the life, the inner man. O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. That's what the incarnation is all about. We throw that word around a lot, this, this word incarnation. But I want us to finish this section of Matthew, this opening chapter of Matthew, this genealogy, if you will, with an, a little more in-depth Discussion, a little more in-depth understanding of the incarnation and, and what exactly that means, uh, what it means to us, the implications and applications of that, okay? Let's look at the text. Turn with me to Matthew 1, and let's, let's read this final section of chapter 1. I'll start reading in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, 
she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken, excuse me, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of God of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. All right, let's pray. Lord, we've read these passages so many times. And the words seem so very familiar to us. But Lord, the mystery, the miracle of of what is included in these verses, the reality of what was taking place cosmically and eternally, Lord, it's um, we won't begin to touch on it today, Father, but I do pray you'd help us today to understand what it means to us, what it means, Lord, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God, with us. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, teach us and, and lead us through this passage. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. What I just read, the event that I just read here from Matthew, um, has been called the most extraordinary miracle in the whole Bible. And think about it for a second. It may not be as you know, it may not be as flashy as some of them that we read about. It may, but it's the most extraordinary thing as we read this passage. In fact, one writer called it the most remarkable mystery in the universe. This, this is pretty amazing. This baby that we read about here is the center of all history. The center of all history. One writer said the, the hinge of history swung on the door of a stable. Think about that for just a second. I read this article that was actually written about 10 years ago by Mike Cosper. He's a writer with the Christianity Today. He actually heads up their their blog um, side of the, the publication. Here's what Cosper wrote 10 years ago. Christmas is violent. It's earth shattering. The very order of things, the way the world worked, was being rewritten. He writes that in 1811, an earthquake in Missouri caused church bells to ring in Philadelphia and made the Mississippi River run backwards. And when the Christ child gasped his first breath, the hinge of history swung in a new direction and hell shuddered. The assault on its gates had begun. As Mary labored, an evil stirred that was so great so devilish that it called for the blood of all of Bethlehem's infant sons. Our hero and his family were hunted by Satan himself and fled to Egypt chased by an ancient evil throwing stars down from the sky. We have our cute little nativity scenes, but that's not what was happening. It was violent, Cosper says. 
Something world-changing. I was thinking about it. Something world-changing was going on in the universe itself so that something life-transforming could happen inside of you and me. It's amazing to see that. So let's just focus on verses 21 through 23 for a minute. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will save his people from their sins. We say that all the time. We sing it all the time. Many of us have professed it and and have staked our eternity on it, right? But what does that really mean? That he will save his people from their sins. How would he do this? What does this text tell us about how this baby, this Emmanuel God with us, would save his people from their sins? And I believe the answer to that lies in, in the nature of this child. The nature of Christ. The nature of Jesus. Who was he? What does this text tell us about who he is? And and what that means to to you and me. So, I want us to think about his humanity. He's a baby, right? He's being born here. We we see that. And I want us to think about his deity. He is called the God-man. All right? So, we're going to get kind of deep into some, some theology, some doctrinal truths this morning. But the implications of that are just... Man, they're so, they're so revealing. They're so liberating. They're soul-saving. Soul-saving, okay? As the Son of Man, Jesus was fully human. So let's think about what we know from the New Testament and really some of the Old Testament too. Luke's genealogy, we've talked about it a little bit, but remember, Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham and goes to Jesus. Luke's genealogy in chapter 3 starts with Jesus and goes past Abraham, all the way to Adam. Luke is very careful as he's writing to Gentiles. Matthew's writing to Jewish people. He wants them to understand. This Jesus I'm writing about is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. Luke, on the other hand, is writing to Gentiles. And he wants to make the connection. He wants us to see the connection between Jesus and Adam. And understand the connection there between the son of God and the son of Adam, if you will. And I'll touch on that in just a second. But as a human being, I think we understand, although we may dismiss it sometimes, that Jesus was like us in every way, yet without sin. All right? Our early church fathers would phrase it in different ways, but it summarized that without ceasing to be what he was, which is divine, which is God, he became what he was not, which is human. And so, remember John put it this way, the Word became flesh, right, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All things were created by him. So we begin to see the characteristics of God. We begin to see some of these things of God. But before we even talk about that, he is fully human. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we have what we know in Latin as the proto-evangelium. It's the the first gospel in Genesis chapter 3. And what is that? 
Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Her offspring, the offspring of a woman, the seed of a woman, all right, the child of a woman would be the snake crusher. And this idea of the seed of a woman threads its way all the way through the Bible. All the way through Scripture we find that. And, and so Matthew narrows it down to Abraham. He was the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. Where Luke takes us all the way back to Adam. So Jesus' humanity. Think about it for just a second. And I won't, I'm not going to take the time to go into it, but he was born, all right? We, we get that, right? Matthew tells us that. Luke tells us that. He was born. And he was born just like you and I are born, okay? Now, the circumstances of it obviously are very miraculous as the Holy Spirit worked and worked inside the womb of Mary. All right? That's, that, obviously, that's miraculous. But Jesus was born. I don't know how hard the labor was. I can't imagine it was easy. He came out crying. He came out grasping for his mother. The last thing Mary would have wanted that night is the little drummer boy. All right? I love that song. But the last thing she would have wanted was some kid in there banging on a drum. She's worn out. Jesus is crying. He was born. He was born just like you and me. He experiences the limitations of humanity all the way through the gospel accounts, okay? He gets hungry. He gets tired. He experiences human emotion without sin. There's righteous anger there. There's frustration with his disciples. He has this full range. He, he gets thirsty. Jesus was human in every way. And in a mysterious way, even his divine omniscience is limited in his human mind. And I can't begin to understand all of this, but there were things that Jesus said he did not know in his humanity. He was fully human. He was tempted. The scriptures tell us that. And, but yet, Hebrews tells us, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who is not unable. Or he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, we can talk about and write about, there's really big, could he have sinned? I'm not even going to go there. I don't believe he could. But he was tempted. And the scriptures tell us that he suffered in that temptation. And because he suffered in that temptation, we can find the help that we need when we face our temptations, right? So he was human in that. He suffered and died as a human. He bled. His flesh was pierced. And so we have this picture. Now, we know that God cannot die, but this man died. He was raised. The scriptures tell us. And he was raised with a human body. He was recognized by his disciples. He was raised with that human body. Yes, it was different. It was glorified. And that's a whole other aspect of what we will one day be. He ascended up into heaven, Acts 1 tells us, bodily. And the angel says he'll come back in the same way, bodily. Jesus was human in every way. And that's... That's what we have to hold on to here sometimes, right? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2.
This is what we have to hold on to. Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children, that's you and me. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be like his, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. His humanity means everything to us, church. It means everything to us in our weakness, in our temptations, in our struggles. His humanity means everything to us. But his humanity also means something to us even for eternity. All right? The scriptures refer to Jesus as the second Adam. What in the world does that mean? Remember, Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to the first Adam. And the second Adam, or the last Adam, is what we find when we think about the humanity of Jesus. Let me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can turn there if you want to, 1 Corinthians 15. It's that beautiful chapter in the end of Corinthians about the resurrection. And Paul writes in verse 47 of 1 Corinthians 15, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As the man of dust, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So Paul here is making this connection. The man of dust is Adam. The man of heaven is Jesus. So this Adam that we are connected to, Paul says, we are connected to this second Adam also in faith. He put it this way in Romans 5. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam is a type in the Old Testament of the one who is to come. Here's what this means. We did not need an animal to be our sacrifice. We don't need some angel to be our substitute. Adam, the first Adam failed. He rebelled and he sinned. And we received that sin as we are related to him. It comes through that bloodline, right? But we also transgress ourselves. We understand this? We have this sin nature in us and then we have this sin nature that lives itself out in us from the moment we start crying and want what we want. And we perfect it as we age. But how can we be freed from that? How can, how can we be freed from the curse of the first Adam? We need an Adam who did not fail. We need one who was successful. We need one who was faithful. We need one who did not disobey, did not rebel. 
And that's what we find in Jesus. That's what we have in him. Paul said in Galatians 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul writes, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So here's what this means. Sin and death came through the first Adam, right? We understand that. And the only way we can see that reversed is for another perfect human, another Adam, to come and do what he failed to do. And to do it on our behalf. To do it for us. Only through this human who is perfect can humanity be restored to what we were supposed to be. And Jesus accomplishes that for us. His perfect life. All right? His active obedience is what the theologians call it. His active obedience was his perfect obedience, perfect submission to the law and the will of God. We are saved by that active obedience. We are also saved by what is called his passive obedience. Simply allowing God's will for his death, his punishment, the cross, all of that to be worked in his life. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, Peter tells us. So it's through his obedience. Only one who is truly human can stand in the place of lost humanity. See that? Jesus was that. He was that. So he is our second Adam. He is our champion where the first one failed. He is our substitute. No one else could be that. And that gift of salvation that God offers to us comes through him and him alone. He is that for us. I'll talk about this more in just a minute. So his humanity is critical. And he is that. But it also says that he is Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. God with us. God wrapped up in human flesh. God wrapped up in a way that his humanity was clear for all to see. And as he ministered, soon those divine characteristics that were who he was was also clear to see. Did they figure it out right away? No. No, they didn't. But he's fully God. And and people still struggle with this. There was a survey released just this past September. Just this past September. Now, the survey was conducted before March. Okay, right? Just so you know, nobody was knocking on doors asking people questions, all right? I mean, we won't even go to the grocery store. So we're sure not going to go knock on doors for a survey. But this survey was conducted by Lifeway Research and also it was by Ligonier Ministries. So Ligonier and Lifeway Research cooperated together to do this survey to just kind of see where Americans stand on key theological points. One of the questions they asked was, Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. And people were asked to respond to that statement. 53% of the American adults that were asked that question agreed with it. They agreed that he's a good teacher, but he is not God. I'm not surprised at that at all. I was a little surprised at one other aspect of that question in that 31% of confessing evangelicals agreed with that statement. 
A third of those who profess to be evangelical Christians agreed that Jesus is God. Excuse me, agreed that Jesus is a good teacher, but he is not God. We are not doing a very good job discipling our folks, are we? Fully God. And the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures show us that this aspect of Jesus that is so easily dismissed. And, I mean, we see Jesus as gentle and humble and God as this big, fiery God who's throwing down lightning bolts, right? Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The Old Testament refers, I mean, the Old Testament scriptures, there's, I've got five ways here, okay? If you want to jot these down, I can, I'll post these for you later, but just, to, just kind of a quick overview is what we're doing here, okay? How, how does the, how does the New Testament and the Old Testament point us to the deity of Christ? What does it mean that God is with us, Emmanuel? How do we know that He is God? Well, in the New Testament, the use of Old Testament scriptures that refer to God that then also refer to Christ is one way that we see that. And we see it throughout the New Testament. Over in the book of Hebrews again, in chapter 1. Let me just read you this. All right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then the writer of Hebrews begins to pull these Old Testament scriptures out and apply them to Jesus. For instance, in verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again... I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Look at verse eight. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So here we have these passages that refer to God being referred to Jesus. The Old Testament scriptures over and over are used in the New Testament. In Luke chapter four, Jesus himself. Goes to the book of Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 58. He quotes Isaiah 61. He, he quotes Psalm 48 and then says, Today these scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing. All right? The Old Testament scriptures that refer to Jesus is one way we see his deity. One way that I was studying this week, and I was so encouraged by this, is one way that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where the actual Shema, remember? Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. That foundational truth of monotheistic understanding. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. And Paul takes that and applies it to Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 4, we hear, There is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through Him. We could take a long time to develop this, but here Paul is basically taking this doctrinal truth of the monotheistic nature of God and applying it to Jesus. 
So the Shema points to the deity of Jesus. Here's the third way and the most astounding way that is often missed, and I don't understand it. Jesus accepts the worship that God alone deserves. He accepts that for himself. I'll just let, I'll just tell you, 30 years ago, the first thing I was asked to do when I came here was teach through Revelation. And I said, not a chance in the world. Not a chance I'm going to do that. I couldn't begin to tell you what the book of Revelation meant 30 years ago. Guess what? I still can't. But I'm going to start it next Sunday, okay? We're going to, we're going to work our way through the book of Revelation. You better not applaud that because we're going to be stumbling through it together. All right? It is with great fear and consternation that I even say that, that we're going to start our way through that amazing passage of Scripture. I say that to just simply point us to Revelation 19, where John tells us in this amazing picture of what's going on there in that eternal worship. He says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. This is John falling at the feet of an angel. But he said to me, the angel said to John, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brother. Who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Scripture is clear. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Worship is alone for God. Right? And yet in Hebrews 1, I just read. <laughs> Let all God's angels worship him. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's a song of worship. And in Matthew 28, right after his resurrection, it says that those who first saw him there in the garden fell down at his feet and worshipped him, and he didn't tell them to stop. He accepted that worship from them. They took hold of his feet and worshipped him, and he received it and accepted it. And I read in the Revelation 5, right? I looked and I heard around the throne living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, singing with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus received that worship. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And he was not corrected. Jesus receives worship. Number four, Jesus has divine titles that are given to him throughout the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. The Word was God. He was the Creator. All things were created by Him. He's the Sustainer. He upholds this creation, Hebrews says, by, the, by His powerful Word. He sustains us. He is he's eternal. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's unchangeable. He forgives sins, and the Pharisees rebuke Him for that. Only God can forgive sins, they say. You're right. That is the only, he is the only one who can do that. And he's doing it in your presence. And he judges. This is amazing. In John chapter 5, and, and, I, and I would point anyone to, to these chapters in John when they talk about, well, he was a good teacher, but he never confessed to be God. I don't know what, put down that Jehovah's Witness copy of the Bible, Okay. Pick up the real one and see what Jesus says about himself. Jesus said in John 5, starting in verse 23, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 
that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. In Revelation chapter six, this judge brings great terror to the world. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and along, among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. There's no gentleness and lowliness there. The great day of wrath has come. Who can stand, it says. So this is the picture that we have. This is this, is this Emmanuel, God with us. He has these divine titles. He has these divine attributes. He has the divine characteristics. He's eternal. He is to be worshipped. All of this is given for us in this simple little passage. The God-man. Church, that's, that's who has saved us. That's who has sacrificed for us. That's who sustains us. The God-man is the one who ascended up back into heaven and he is seated right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and me. And one day he will return in the same way that he went up. He will be recognized this next time. There'll be no mistake. It'll not be hidden. And as I was thinking about this, I read another I read an article this week that, man, I was I've read it several times, and I, and I posted it for you this morning because I would encourage you to, to read it too. Um, just thinking more about this idea of Jesus being the second Adam and what that means for you and me, that he who always was God became what he was not. And, and Paul says in Hebrew, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians, that he did it for our sakes. He who knew no sin became sin for us, right? That we might become righteous through his perfect obedience. The article says, in order for Christ to be our second Adam, he had to fight and win on the same battleground where our first Adam lost. The first Adam fell as man, therefore Christ must stand as man, as one made like his brothers in every respect, quoting from Hebrews, yet without sin. And then he quoted Sinclair Ferguson, who said, if we are to be holy, that holiness must be wrought out in our humanity. And this is what Christ has accomplished. Christ is the forerunner, Ferguson says, of a new humanity. So understand this. This Jesus, fully human, listen, is everything we were meant to be. Not divine in that sense, but his humanity is everything we were meant to be. And his redemption of us is moving us to that end. It's moving us to that place. Now, as you let those words sink in, if you're at all like me, and I think you are, the more they sink in, the more we'll be crushed under the weight of them. And how far short I fall of being the man that God created me to be and that Jesus redeemed me to be. Now, it's not a hopeless recognition of that. Because as, as the article went on to say, Jesus saves us in that humanity of his with the same power 
that is available to you and me, and that is the Holy Spirit. We'll begin the book of Revelations, not the first week, but the second week, hearing what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And I've been thinking this week about that. I've been thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit in us, the power of the Holy Spirit in us, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, and in me specifically, how evident that is. This is one last quote from that article, and I really appreciated it. He's talking about the spirit of Christmas, all right? Oh, just kind and gentle and sweet and nativity scenes and all of that. And I'm not taken away from that, but he says, We find another spirit of Christmas that is neither vague nor tame. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, He is a living spirit, a sovereign spirit, even a dangerous spirit. Dangerous to all inside of us that is unlike Christ. And to all outside of us that is opposed to Christ. He is a, listen to this, world-invading, wonder-working, devil-spurning, sin-slaying, death-destroying spirit. Power is his hallmark and the glory of Christ is his aim. And though invisible as the wind, he is as mighty as the hurricane. And if his work at times feels slow, he will not stop until Christ is formed in us. That is the second Adam. That is the God-man. Jesus is what, in his humanity, is what God created us to be. The first Adam failed at that, and that failure has been passed on to you and me. Jesus came to redeem and restore and bring us back to that humanity that God created us to be. All right? And that work is slow. It is turtle slow at times. But it is consistent in those who have been born again. There is a consistency in that. And I am thankful for that. And I would just, as I've, as I've been thinking about this whole end of the year and coming into 2021, you know, we often talk about things being put behind us and moving into a new chapter. There's a lot of things that are not going to change much January the 1st. Culturally and in, in a lot of, there's some things that just aren't going to change. But, you know, that's really true every year, right? And just a... Same things that I wanted to do a few years ago, January 1st. I'd probably like to start doing those again this year, January the 1st. Some of those things don't change, do they? I've seen in myself and in, in many others this year extraordinary efforts. Efforts to protect ourselves. Efforts to guard ourselves and our families. I've seen us struggle with fear. I've seen us struggle with small little steps of faithfulness that we really took for granted. We've seen ourselves setting things aside that we took for granted and not doing things that we never thought we would not do. And I've thought about that in regard to our daily routines, our lives, everything. And, and, and then in a spiritual sense, this, this world-invading, wonder-working, devil-spurning, sin-slaying spirit. 
What have I done over the past 12 months in an effort to know Him better? To be filled with Him. To, to know this sin-slaying power of my Savior that He makes available to me. Remember, everything that's necessary for life and godliness is ours, Peter says. He has not left us deficient in what we need. This is the God-man. This is Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus, and He will save His people from their sins. Don't start another year without trusting in Him as your champion. Don't start another year carrying the burden of your own sin and your own failures. If, you've never in, if you're in this place or if you're listening and you've never trusted in Jesus, the Jesus that this scripture gives us a picture of, this Jesus who is fully God, has all authority to judge and one day will judge, is the same gentle shepherd who comes and wants to shepherd your soul into his flock. He laid down his life for you. He took the penalty that your rebellion deserves in mind and put it upon himself. He was perfectly obedient in what he did. And he was perfectly obedient in what he allowed to happen to him. As God poured out the wrath upon sin that you and I deserve upon Jesus. Have you trusted in him? Turn from your sin and placed your life in this one who is eternal and unchanging and will hold you and secure you forever. And he will begin a work in you and me to make us into that human that God created us to be. Now, it won't be finished this side of glory, but it will get finished. It will be done. Have you trusted in him? And church, I would just encourage us to just remember it is not by might. It is not by our power. It is by God's spirit. That anything at all is done in his kingdom. And so let's hunger and thirst after that. All right. Father, I pray that the likeness of Christ would be reinstated in some today. That the likeness of that first Adam who rebelled and sinned would be erased, as Wesley wrote. And then in that place, Lord, your image would be placed. God, we pray that you'd help us as your church to hunger and thirst after your righteousness. That the life of Christ that is in us, Lord, would grow and bear fruit and manifest. Thank you for what you've started in our lives, Lord, and thank you that you're going to be faithful to complete it. We do thank you for your faithfulness, God, to us over this past year. And that we stand on that faithfulness in this next one to come. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.